Long Beach Sermons, visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. That was beautiful. Wow. Thank you, Amy. Um, welcome, friends. Uh, my name is Bill White. I'm one of the co-pastors at City Church of Long Beach. My pronouns are he, him, and it is really great to be able to worship with everyone on Zoom this morning. It's a really, it's a, it's a gift. Um, thanks for flexing with the, um, you know, we had to make a call on whatever it was, Thursday or Friday. And so even though it's, it's not the downpour right now, we're, you know, better safe than sorry, right? And so glad that we could all be here today. Uh, just as a reminder of who we are, we're a radically welcoming community on the journey towards Jesus, joining him in the renewal of all things. And uh, we're, we're just so glad that we have Zoom as an option. And just want to remind people that every week there's a community that gathers on Zoom. And it's, it's, it's part of City Church. It's just part of who we are. And so for those of us who normally gather in person, um, in some ways we're sharing their space right now. And so let's, you know, let's just be mindful of that and honor each other and participate in ways that that honor the Zoom space, right? So make comments or say hello to someone that you met a few weeks ago in the chat. Um, this is this is what we do to, to build community in, in the virtual space, okay? So I, I really want to encourage everyone to think about if you can, and, and I realize some people here are, are new, uh, some people have been around a long time, whoever you are, um, this is your space. Uh, let's let's honor it by participating and recognizing that this actually is church. This is church. The, these people, this gathering. Um, and uh, each week, we pay attention to a special community within our midst uh, because they matter so much. And that is our children. Uh, they're the children of our of the families gathered here and the extended city church community, but it's also the children of Lafayette Elementary School and the children of our world. So let's uh, let's pray. Jesus, thanks for the kids. Uh, thanks for the kiddos who are on this call uh, this morning. Um, pray you bless them and remind them that they are awesome. Pray your peace over Lafayette this week as it gets very wet. And I pray you'd Protect the families and bless the kiddos and bless the education there. And we pray for kiddos in our world for peace and healing. Uh, we pray particularly uh, for a ceasefire in Gaza um, so that kids could uh, get food and health care and that their lives could um, somehow start to rebuild. God have mercy um, on us and show us our part in your kingdom. Uh, building in this world for the sake of all of our children. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much for that, Bill. Um, I know I've met many of you, but if I haven't yet, my name is Brenna Rubio. I'm the other co-pastor here at City Church, and my pronouns are she, her. And this morning, I am so excited uh, because I get to continue the conversation that we've been having around freeing Jesus, uh, freeing Jesus from all these different systems of power and oppression and these 
these misconceptions and distortions of who Jesus is that have built up over time, placing Jesus on the side of the powerful, uh, on the side of, in all these different ways, uh, the oppressors. And, and it has been, um, I want to say it's been a, it's been a fun series so far. I mean, fun isn't the right word, but it's just been deeply good being able to get into some of these conversations um, with all of you. So excited about all the different people that we have been able to listen to. Uh, For instance, next week, Bill is going to be talking with his friend Barack Bomani as we think about freeing Jesus from racism. Huge, huge topic, right? So, so looking forward to that. But this morning, we get to talk about freeing Jesus from the patriarchy, uh, freeing Jesus from sexism. Um, and it's so funny that Bill is given the over here. <laughs> but it's a needed conversation, right? Um, I was thinking, okay, do people know what, like when we talk about the patriarchy, what visions do we all have? Uh, even as we we start just like leaning into that topic. And I'm like, well, of course, everybody knows now. Like if you somehow weren't aware of this idea of the patriarchy before, I mean, now we have Barbie, you know, the movie, right? And so everybody, we've got that rant playing in our heads and we're not uh, gonna rec- you know, play it for you or anything, but we all know, okay, patriarchy is, it's that, right? Um, I, for me, I, <laughs> the story that comes to mind for me, or I think is, this is, this is just that illustration of what the patriarchy is. It was when I was 22 and I graduated from college and I was joining this great big international missions organization. And in some ways, I think I just didn't do my research quite well enough. So I'm at this new staff orientation and I'm going through the line, picking up all my materials. And there's, there's something there that is not for me but I want it anyway, because it catches my eye and I'm so intrigued. And what could this possibly be? There's a manual for staff wives. And I think, hmm, what could be in there? I'm not a wife, but I'm curious what instructions they might have for the wives who are coming on staff. Why would there be particular instructions? Well, it turns out because you know, they have some important information to convey about things like how you might take messages well when your husband receives important phone calls, you know, and really needing to make sure that you you assist him well in his ministry that way. And then there were the all important sections about maintaining a healthy and attractive weight so that you would set your husband up well in ministry and to maintain his sexual integrity Um, by keeping yourself attractive. And it was just a wow. If you're curious, I do not have that manual anymore. I felt like it tempted me to anger and to sin too often. And so I finally got rid of it. But these are some of the stories that we might think of when we hear the word patriarchy. Patriarchy uh, is any, any system that centers men, and not just men, cis-hetero men specifically, and masculinity. 
that if we think about that kind of traditional gender binary, where there are things that are associated with the masculine and things that are associated with the feminine, it's, it's those masculine qualities and virtues, the things that we assign towards that end of the binary um, that are prioritized and centered and held up as most important. And so the more you play into those virtues and that system, uh, the more you are protected. Um, and, and this thing plays out in our families. Uh, it plays out in society as a whole. And of course, it plays out in our churches. And I am so excited today uh, and because I get to have a conversation. We all get to listen in as my friend Rebecca Martinek-Williams. Uh, she's agreed to come and to talk about these things with me and to, to share some of her reflections and some of her stories. So thank you, Rebecca. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, <laughs> church family. So yeah, talk with us a little bit about patriarchy and and yeah. did you experience any of that growing up as a good church kid? Yeah, well, I can I can safely say that I'm not a godly woman by all standards that I was measured to growing up. Yeah, same, um, same. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I was thinking about that. And yes, you know, I grew up in a very conservative church and there was very much an a spoken and unspoken rules around how women should behave, how should they would show up, what characterized us as, as godly women. And um, I, I remember my grandmother, my mother and others, you know, um, just reinforcing that like we were here to help men. Um, the men in our lives were chosen by God. And so in order for us to be classified as good godly women, we needed to be of service to them. Um, and, uh, and we needed to be good tempered, compliant, subservient, all of those things. Um, and, and I remember, you know, the things that women were not supposed to be were, you know, outspoken, uh, you know, we weren't supposed to be bold or ambitious, like that took away from the men in our world. Um, and, and they would always go back to that verse, right? So if we go back to Genesis, you know, we were supposed to be helpers, you know, Adam needed a helper, you know, and so we were supposed to be these helpers. And and I also remember mm -hmm. there was like this also overlying context that like Eve was not a good helper because I mean, really the fall of all creation was on her shoulders, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, we were supposed to be good helpers and we were supposed to make sure that we didn't lead men astray. Um, I also recall though, like that's a really uh, great idea if all the women in my life had a world in which they could just be fragile and and helpful and meek, but that's not that's not what they got. Um, yeah. I grew up in in a, in a state of chaos. Um, I grew up in a in a really uh, difficult space where people were dealing with substance abuse and infidelity and and uh, you know death and all those things. And so I always thought. Um, so interesting that this is how we were supposed to be and yet god didn't give any of these women a life in which that was a reality for them right mm -hmm. they were constantly having to hold our family together um, in the midst of chaos make sure kids were okay um, and all of that and, and i really struggled to say if this is how women were created to be then why did we get the existence that allowed us to be that way um, I also struggled with the concept of like, I identified with none of that. Um, I wanted to buck the system at a really young age. And mostly because I didn't feel like, I felt like what they were asking me to be 
was the opposite of who God had created me to be. And so I really struggled. Um, but I, um, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I was uh, reading a book by uh, Glennon Doyle um, and called The Love Warrior. And um, there was a, there was a, a page in there that kind of reconciled this for me, but just to give a little context on the book, um, you know, she's, she's dealing with her marriage falling apart. She's dealing with infidelity and she comes from churches where, you know, they're telling her like, it is God's desire that you be the helper for your husband and for you to show up. And so essentially you should put all of your feelings aside around whatever has happened in your life and you should do what God uh, wants you to do be the woman that God wants you to be. Um, and she, she delves in a little bit about the word, uh, Ezer, and I'm not a theologian by any stand, you know, point, but that is the word that's used around the creation of Eve. And so, mm -hmm. um, I wanted to share kind of this quote, um, for people to resonate with, and I want to read it to you, but this really shaped and changed, um, my opinion and helped me to reconcile a bit you know, that disconnect between what I was told women should be and what women actually dealt with on a daily basis. And so it says this, the word Ezer has two roots, strong and benevolent. The best translation of Ezer is warrior. God created women as a warrior. I think about the tragedies the women in my life have faced, how many time a child gets sick or a man leaves or a parent dies or a community crumbles. The women are the ones who carry on who do what must be done for the people in, in the midst of their own pain while those around them fall away. The women hold the sick and nurse the weak, put the food on the table, carry their families, sadness and anger and love and hope. They keep showing up for their, their lives and their people with the odds stacked against them and the weight of the world on their shoulders. They never stop singing songs of truth, love and redemption in the face of hopelessness. They are inexhaustible, ferocious, relentless co-creators with God, and they make beautiful worlds out of nothing. Have women been warriors all along? Mm. I love that, Rebecca. And I think that really is like what we want to ask today. Say, have we been getting it wrong? Have our churches been getting it wrong? And where have we internalized that? And by the we, of course, we mean not just the women. Um, and not just those of us who are cis or straight, but it's, it's all of us, women and men, um, cis, trans, all of us, right? How have we internalized some of these messages and where can we free Jesus and allow him to free us as well, to live in a more whole way, um, that escapes these restrictive gender narratives and, and just comes into a place of more wholeness. So our friend Kim Bullison is going to read our story for us today. Uh, it's a classic story, um, an awesome one. And yeah, we'll get to in appreciate the story and how it interweaves with our own. So Kim, if you want to unmute, thanks for reading scripture. Hello, everyone. Okay, so it's a uh... In Mark 5, 22 to 34. Uh, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. 
please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she, had, she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out, of, out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Mm, people of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Mm. This is such a powerful story, isn't it? You, it's just so full of details and it's so tactile. Like you just have this like sense of, wow, here's Jesus and he's in a crowd and there are all these people and someone comes to him, a prominent man, a person of influence, and he has this urgent request for Jesus to come and to heal his sick daughter. And Jesus says, yes, and he's moving through the crowd, so many people and there's a woman, and she creeps up just to touch his cloak uh, because she just so desperately wants to be healed herself, and, and she's an outcast, and she doesn't feel worthy, but she thinks, if I can just touch the edge of his cloak, and it works, and she's healed. But Jesus actually senses what happened, and uh, <laughs> there was a a time a few years ago, I was reading this story in a group of women, and one of the women made a comment I will never forget in reading it, because this just isn't, you have to be reading the story in a group of women for this comment to be made, because she says, huh, I wonder, the way the scripture says that Jesus felt that the power had gone out of him, I wonder if it felt sort of like when you're nursing a baby and your milk lets down. And there's this visceral, physical feeling of, yes, a nurturing power. This connection that she was able to make. To, perhaps that's what it felt like to Jesus, this nurturing energy that had been released from him without any thought, without any effort. It just happened. And so despite all the urgency of the crowd, he stops and he wants to find out who, who had generated that response from him, who had touched him, who had he healed. And, and the woman comes up with so much fear and so much trembling, but so bravely still, she's not supposed to be there. But she is, and she shares her whole story. She's been told to be silent. She's been told to stay away, but there she is. And she will speak her story. And Jesus waits, and he listens. 
And it's such a powerful moment, partly just because who is Jesus going to center? We, we know who the culture would center, the society would center. It's, it's obviously Jairus. He's the man of power. He's the religious leader. He's just a man, period. He's at the center of power in this patriarchal system. And yet this woman doesn't even have a name. She's pushed so far to the margins. And she's so unclean. And it's not just that she has a medical condition. It's not just that she's female. I actually think it's important to highlight that this medical condition that she's suffering from is intrinsically related to her sexuality. She's had a bleeding disorder for 12 years. And so we don't know exactly what's happening. Does she have ovarian cysts? Does she have uterine fibroids? Maybe endometriosis? But something is happening with her reproductive system. And so she's bleeding all of the time. And it's because of this that she's been pushed to the margins, that she has been told that she's unclean and that anybody who touches her, who maybe even touches something that she has touched, could become unclean themselves. And, and because that would require such a process for them to cleanse themselves and be someone who couldn't contaminate others, because of that, people just shun her. She just, it's not just a suffering that's medical, that's physical, but it's a suffering that is spiritual and relational. This is who the story is showing us, the powerful man and the unclean, unnamed woman pushed to the margins. So I just wonder, Rebecca, does this bring up any stories for you as you think about just the female experience? I mean, first of all, the concept that people, women were unclean because of this is just like so crazy to me, right? Uh, I can't imagine living in a world where uh, that was the case. But yeah, I mean, I remember... Um, you know, sexual purity was something that was like honed in for women in the church, right? This was like mm -hmm. a big topic. I think it was like the top 10 that youth groups, you know, taught on so that we would be crystal clear, um, you know, about what that looked like. And, you know, it was always interesting to go back to kind of the concepts around how, you know, men were treated versus women. Um, I can't recall a single kind of message that came out of my youth group growing up that emphasized or put responsibility on men. Like they were told, you know, hey, listen, um, sex is good. It is a gift for you and your marriage. You should wait till marriage to do it. But there was kind of like this undertone of like, if you messed up, it's going to be okay. And, uh, you know, just ask for forgiveness and um, everything will be right. And it was such a different situation with women, right? You either one of two women, right? You were either Mary or you were Jezebel. Like there was nothing in between, right? You were either pure or you were a slut. Like that's just the truth, right? And um, I remember this story and I I still am just like in shock that a youth minister would ever do this. But so, you know, we're getting this probably monthly, monthly message. Um, it was definitely something that was, you know, pounded in, so to speak. Um, and, and, and they were talking about the concept of like saving yourself and, and no sex before marriage. And uh, the youth pastor got up and he said, you know, it's, it's kind of like this, right? Like you should save yourself for marriage ladies, 
because you're kind of like a lollipop, right? If, if somebody licks that lollipop, is anybody else going to want to take a lick? Like that was literally his, his euphemism, right? So wow. now we've been kind of pushed down to the concept of, of this lollipop, right? And, and the message for me told me two things, right? We were there strictly for the pleasure of men. And then our virginity is the only thing that gave us value, right? There was mm -hmm. no redemption there, right? There also wasn't an honoring, like there was an honoring of men that this was going to be something they wanted to do. There was no honoring of women and their sexuality in, in that message. And what was so interesting is that that was kind of the message. And so it was like, be, you know, your job is to be chased and, and do all this. And then they would flip the script, right? In the same message, they would tell us, oh, and by the way, you should be super careful about the way you dress, how you present yourself, mm -hmm. how you look, because you could be a stumbling block for men. So, you know, make sure you don't do that because, you know, men, men can't, you know, they shouldn't have to deal with that. And so, I, I, I think I was just shocked because then they would go back to like the, the verse we were talking about, Brenna, in Genesis and the fall, mm -hmm. of men, right? So now women were not only responsible for being like, for like making sure that we were pure, but then we were also responsible for the men in our lives to make sure they were, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the consequences were so different depending on who you were. And um, it felt like, a task that none of us could achieve, like no matter how hard we worked. Yeah. Yeah. You have this real sense of sexuality as being dangerous, right? Especially for women, but it's a very threatening thing. And, and again, it's part of it. It's what potentially makes you unclean, right? It's a part of potentially what puts you to the outside and that there's a whole system kind of built around controlling it, right? And saying whether or not it's within the bounds or outside the bounds. So I thought looking at this story too, I don't know that I'd ever seen, cause I, of course I always looked at there's, there's Jairus and then there's the unnamed woman. And by the way, it bothers me so much that I have a name for Jairus and I don't have a name for the woman. Like I want her to be named. Um, and we'll, we'll get back, back to that more later. Um, but so you have that pair, but then as I really was looking at it, it was the first time where I was like, Oh, there's another pair of characters here to compare and contrast to say, how are they similar and how are they different? Because the Bible is actually good literature, right? Like it's actually like, it's, it's crafted. It's, it, these are well-told stories. And so when we catch elements that mirror each other, that there are these parallels, we're like, that's intentional. There, there's a message here We're we're being asked to pay attention. So the fact that this woman has been bleeding for 12 years, and then later on in the story, not in the part that Kim read for us this morning, but later on in the story, we find out the age of Jairus's daughter, and she is 12 years old. And over the course of the story, we're going to hear, this is Jairus's daughter. And later, we're going to hear Jesus call the woman daughter. And we go, oh, we're supposed to be looking at the two of them. How are they the same? How are they different? Um, and this number 12, even this age of 12, because this daughter, she's in an interesting position 
in a patriarchal society. At, the, at this moment, she's still just Jairus's daughter. She's still a little girl, probably right on the cusp of becoming a woman, probably right at this point where religious leaders are going to start talking to her about lollipops, right? And the dangers of getting licked. <laughs> like, it's, it's coming. But she's not there yet. She's still in this place where she fits well within the system. She's not threatening. And so she's under the protection of her father. Uh, it's this thing that we call sometimes benevolent sexism where the system not only lets you know if you're stepping out of bounds, but it lets you know like what you can do that will keep you safe, what you can do that they will consider not threatening, but actually supporting the system, being complicit, obedient, you know, within the system, not threatening it. And so that's the space where she is. And yet we can imagine that this unnamed woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, there's a good chance that her condition started at around the same age as Jairus's daughter, as she became a sexual being, as her body matured. This may have been when she began bleeding at this same age. And given Jairus's position as a leader of the synagogue, we can even use our, our scriptural, our theological imagination and say, hey, he may have actually been one of the religious leaders who pushed her out, right? Who said, no, you know, you're, you're not clean. We cannot have you here because she no longer fit within the system. So it makes me just wonder, I think we've all had these experiences where are we going to fit the system or are we going to push against it? In some ways, we may feel like we have choices to make, and sometimes the system makes the choice for us. Um, what does that bring up for you, Rebecca? I mean, listen, I, I look at this story as two different things, right? The woman who is bleeding, like, I think you and I talked about this, Brenna. She had nothing left to, 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 to lose, right? She's, when you talk about those living on the margins, like, she's down there right she's, she's already been forced out right. she's already been forced out she's shunned by society and so um i'm in awe of her boldness still because it, it's bold but she doesn't have much to lose and so um i think for her when you get to that place it's like okay this is my last hope my last chance right i'm gonna give it a go um i think it's harder for us to harness that boldness when we have a lot to lose um, and, and I can say that like, you know, for me growing up, the idea of bucking the system sounded really good in my head, but in all actuality, it came with a risk. And I think it, it's a risk for women, no matter where we are. Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember in the, in the first part of my career, I'm a lawyer by background and I work in HR and, um, you know, I knew so well the laws around gender discrimination, I was so aware of how men behaved in the workplace. And yet I also wanted to be it, successful in my career, right? And so I'm trying to balance the two of those. And I I remember being, you know, working and, you know, 
I would say all of the right things. You know, you're supposed to, we're in HR, we're lawyers, we say all the right things. But when situations would come where powerful men were behaving badly, I really had to think about it. Like these were career defining moments. Like, am mm-hmm. I willing to potentially risk losing my job or losing the ability to continue for advancement by being courageous? Or, you know, do I try to like make change without being so loud within the system? And, you know, I for the first part of my career, I... I did the opposite, right? Men would say things, they would be, you know, horrible comments, things like that. And I wouldn't exactly let them get away with it, but I didn't, didn't take it to the gravity that I should have. And I had made up in my mind that like, if I, if I could somehow have the off bar side conversations with them and just tell them, Hey, not cool, but like not make a big deal of it, then there was kind of this unspoken of I'll protect you and you protect me. Mm-hmm. And it worked like, and I started to raise ranks in my career. Um, you know, ultimately what I found was that this was a form of self-betrayal for myself because I became content with working in the system instead of calling out those things, those infractions within the system. Um, and while that took me a lot of time to really reconcile that with me, it came with, Um, you know, having to think about why I really did that and why, you know, why I was willing to do that. Um, You know, and I had to, I had to really seek and take a hard look, which is, I think, why I I don't behave in the same way today. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also like had to give myself like a little bit of grace, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's just true. Men don't walk into work and have these same thought processes, They don't have to push back on the patriarchy in order to do all the things to be good at their career, to get advancement, like, right. And women have to, and sometimes, and depending on where you fall on the margins, your risk is greater, right? For me, my risk really felt like not getting advancement in my career, potentially losing my job. I could have found another job. I could have done other things Mm -hmm. for some women. And I've seen it and, and I've, I've had women come to me now It's like, if I say anything, I lose my job, my kids don't eat. And that's a real fear, you Mm -hmm. know, and I can't afford to do that, you know? And so, um, it's, I, I think it's just so hard and there's not an easy answer. And it's why I remain really curious about how women make choices, because in some ways I felt like women are not, they're, they're never offered the best choice. They've offered the lesser of the two evils in some ways. And so mm-hmm. um, I think that in this story, the woman was bold and I'm so proud of how courageous she was, but I can imagine Jerry is too looking at his daughter and saying, I got this for you. Don't say anything. Don't be, mm-hmm. don't, don't ruffle any feathers. I'm going to, you know, advocate on behalf of you. And, and I think he does something really powerful too, which is to say, when we have privilege, it is our job to advocate with those with less. Mm-hmm. And so what I can say now is, is that it was very important for me to examine my own heart and how I showed up. But the truth is, is that I do have more privilege today because of where I land. And it is absolutely my job to advocate for those with less, even if I have consequences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's some of the reason, right, that I know we've we've talked uh, in bits, you know, as you and I have gone back and forth about this passage, thinking about being parents to sons, right? And how do you raise them to have awareness and uh, willingness to speak up? And um, yeah, but it it really matters, right? To say like, maybe you don't intrinsically go into the workplace worrying about these things, but what if you did? Like, what if you heard the women around you when they came, you know, and they said, well, did you hear this in that meeting? Um, and, and you allowed yourself to become aware um, and to become an advocate, to be the one who would stop the meeting so that she didn't have to, or to call out the comment so that she didn't have to. Right? How powerful would that be? So one of the most healing things to me in this passage is that though the woman is unnamed. Jesus names her. That he says to her, daughter, you are healed. And we're going to come back and talk to about this even more later, but Jesus doesn't use this language a lot. This is actually the only place in all of scripture where we hear Jesus using daughter this way. Um, there are a few other places where it's, a, it's more like a scriptural reference, like he's like, oh, daughters of Jerusalem right? Talking to a group of women. But in this way that, as my husband Israel said last night, where it's like he's calling her Miha, right? It's like, it's it's affectionate. It's intimate. It's claiming. Daughter, Miha, you are healed. And in that way, she is. She's named, her value is named, right? Her place in the story is named. And not in a way, I think that says, you know, because you're healed, you know, now you're not dirty anymore. Now you're not unclean. But really just saying, this is who you have always been. You have always been a child of God. Yes, Jairus' daughter, she has the advocate in her father. Me, your heavenly father, we're your advocate. You've always been daughter. You have always been God's child. Right. And, and there truly is something powerful about that. Right. Like that, that old phrase, like you will never speak to anyone who is not a child of God, that while all of these systems that we're talking about over these, these few weeks, um, these systems of oppression, they're all about insiders and outsiders, you know, who has power and who, ha who doesn't that this miha, this miho, it's a way of saying, no, you all matter. You individually and you and you and you, we're all, we're all made in the image of God. We all genuinely matter. And, and there's just something so deeply healing just about reading it to say, this is how Jesus called her in and, and called her by name and called her his. And so I wonder, Rebecca, could you share, like, have there been some moments like that for you where you feel like somebody has looked at you, touched you, spoken to you in a way that said, I see you and yeah. you matter deeply just because you're you. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I've had incredible people in my life come along that have taught me lessons, you know, because I was who I was. And I, listen, I'm a Latina that grew up in a predominantly white space. I'm mm -hmm. queer um, and 
knew that inherently there was something or believed that there was inherently something wrong with me that I probably couldn't overcome and continue in my faith. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, at a very young age, learned to hustle for my self-worth. So this, this follows you, you know, as far as you go until you have, until you have a sense that you are worthy and that you were worthy of love and just for who you are. And so um, I had this really amazing professor in law school and um, I, I really admired her. Um, she was, for me, she was a powerful woman, but she was one of the most soft-spoken women that I'd ever met. And um, she taught many of my classes. She taught constitutional law, but I also took, um, I also took a class called Women in the Law. And the focus on this class was kind of like, hey, guess what? Men made the law and the law was built to protect men. So like, how do we operate in a world like that if we're trying to be lawyers? Um, and I'll never forget, someone someone recommended to me way before I took this class when I was entering law school, they gave me this book and it was called uh, Becoming Gentlemen. And and the, pre the preface of this book was that we were gonna enter a man's world, right? And so we were gonna have to find out how to navigate this. So it was almost mansplaining to women how to be men <laughs> in the legal profession. And I was wait, just- Wait, wait, it was written to women? It was written to women. This was, that was the intended audience. The intended audience was, well, it was the story of these women who had gone through law school and it was like telling uh, like them how they had been basically groomed to become gentlemen. Wow, okay. Yeah. And so she, so my, my professor is teaching this class and she's saying do the exact opposite, right? She's telling us that like, if we are going to effectuate change in this world that was built by men to protect men, that like, we had to do the opposite. She's like, you can't approach this work with inauthenticity because it will diminish the inherent power that women possess. Mm. And like, what you have that men don't is that you're women. And if you can harness the power of what women can do in their own authenticity, it could, it will throw off the system and how it was built to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So she's saying all this and I'm like, wait, what? Um, and, and so this is how it played out. Um, I respected this woman so deeply. She was a woman also that, you know, I was dealing with deconstructing my faith and she was willing to have very difficult conversations with me. So I, this woman was like on a pedestal for me. I wanted to emulate her professor Larry. She was wonderful. And um, I remember I went in to go take her test. And, um, you know, when I respect you, I want you to know that I was paying attention, that I took notes, that I bothered to study. But I had a moment when I walked in to take my final and I buckled and I had a panic attack. I had to put my head between my legs and I had to breathe deeply because I think it just got to me. Like I put so much pressure on myself because I wanted her to know how much I revered her. And yet here I was. I don't even remember taking the test. Mm -hmm. And so um, a couple of weeks later, I'm walking through the hall where all the professors have the office and she pops out to say hello to me. And she says, oh, do you want your grade? I know they're going to mail them, but I thought I could give it to you now. And I said, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm like, don't bother. Uh, I'll just get it in the mail like everybody else. And she's like looking at me like I'm so strange. And she's like, Rebecca, what's really going on? And I said, listen, I... I like just revere you and I wanted to do so well, but I had a panic attack and this is what happened. And, you know, I said, I just, I feel so bad because I, I just, I think I failed your test. And uh, she kind of like paused for a minute and she said, 
Well, first of all, nobody felt failed my exam. So I can take that off the table. I said, okay. And she said, but what if I told you that no matter how badly you did on the, this exam, it had no impact on how intelligent that I think you are. And I said, well, if that's true, then it's completely debunked my whole philosophy around how I'm valued. Hmm. And she said, we spent a whole semester together talking about men, the patriarchy, how women have influence. And she's like, this is what I can tell you. Men approach the world believing that they are worthy. Women don't. Women think they have to earn their worthiness, that they have to get there, but it's not inherent. She's like, and that's the problem. She's like, so hear me when I say this. You are worthy. Hmm. Okay. I also had to run away really quickly so that I could cry in a corner because, you know, nobody had ever looked at me and said, no matter how you show up, no matter how you are, you are worthy. Hmm. And I think in this story, and I think that Jesus just comes to tell us this, I say you are worthy. And because I say you are worthy, you are worthy. Mm. Yeah. He doesn't put gender on that. Mm -mm. You know? And so for me, that was like healing. I needed somebody to tell me that I was just worthy and I didn't have to quantify my worthiness. Mm. Absolutely. And I love too your professor's intentionality, right? She knew what she was looking for. She knew that there were going to be women coming through her courses who needed that extra word of healing and encouragement and just deep, I see you, yeah. right? And she went out of her way, just like Jesus does. Yeah, Jairus can wait, right? The daughter who's still under protection, she can wait, right? Let me focus on this woman who so deeply needs me in this moment. So here's one last piece in this story for us to look at. Because um, I just love seeing how Jesus is so intentional and he knows what we need. So there's this woman who's been pushed aside, who's been pushed down, who's been told to be quiet, who's been told to stay away. And faithfulness for her looks like saying no and taking up space, right? It means speaking up. It means being bold and active and advocating for herself, no matter how scared she is in the moment. And Jesus says, yes, daughter right? I see you. That's what faithfulness looked like for her. Those were her steps towards healing and wholeness. But I think it's so important to recognize that what is faithful for one person is not always what is needed and necessary to be faithful to another. I mean, my experiences with that has always been the opposite, right? That I think so often, you know, I grew up in churches where the people preaching the sermons were always men, right? And so for instance, they would preach sermons about pride and the dangers of pride. And all the women who were already not prideful would go, uh-huh, uh-huh, we should get smaller, <laughs> right? Actually not helpful. But they, the men were preaching out of what they knew and experienced and what was good for their souls, right? I'm, I'm, I'm glad they were thinking about their pride. It just wasn't helpful 
to me and my personal experience when I had all the voices in the world telling me to get smaller already. Well, so what's interesting is we say, okay, this is the one time in all of scripture that Jesus calls someone daughter. I was curious. I was like, is there a place where he calls a man son? Do we ever see that anywhere? And it turns out there's just one place in scripture where Jesus calls someone son. And it's in the book of Mark as well, just a couple of chapters earlier. And here is the story. Jesus is in a house. The crowds are all around like usual. And some men came bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And I just think it's fascinating because what was faithful for this man that Jesus recognizes, he recognizes his wholeness, recognizes his worthiness, is the exact opposite, right? He's not being all bold and active and advocating for himself. He's accepting the help of his friends. He's relying on community to do what he cannot. He's being humble. He's being vulnerable. He's being carried like a little baby through a crowd, lowered down through a roof. The exact opposite of the masculine ideal, right? This picture we often get from toxic masculinity of like the Lone Ranger, right? He-Man, Zorro, who can just do all the stuff, doesn't need anyone. But faithfulness for him is expressed in his willingness to be weak and to need and to rely on community. Just the exact opposite of what our culture often tells men to do. And so it's so interesting just to see, yes, faithfulness here, it's all about flipping the power structures. It's all about, for each of us, if, if we have more power, how do we learn to put it down, right? Or how do we learn to use it in a way that builds community and interdependence instead of just wielding it against others? And if we've been given less power, how do we learn to pick it up, right? To challenge what the culture has told us about who we are. And I just love recognizing this picture because I want that for the men in my lives too, right? I want them to be able to find wholeness alongside all of us. So Rebecca, just what word would you want to end with? Like what would be an encouragement for our community that you would want to give? Yeah, I mean... And I love that you brought that up for the men of our community. Like I have an 11 year old and we've talked about this, Brenda, where like toxic masculinity will not work for him. Mm -hmm. He is, he will lose. He, he will lose. And he's already losing in fifth grade. And as a mom, I struggle. Like, how do I, how do I give him that sense of worthiness that you don't have to be this guy? And yet, how do I also let him know that it's going to be hard for him to pursue being authentic? Mm -hmm. But when I, when I think about this, I think it's, I love how Jesus does this, which is that, you know, Jesus works very much in the paradox. And so when I, let's, my professor did me a huge favor 
and and just was so sweet to me to say that. <laughs> and let me show you how it flips and what I've learned by being at City Church. And then I'll I'll say what I hope for all of us. Um so in that worthiness, like I thought, because I grew up feeling so small, and I think many women in church grow up feeling so small. And so I really thought that in this like now newfound worthiness, that the answer was to be big, to be powerful, to be all of this. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now I had a little wind in my sails and I set out to do the things that I said I was going to do. I got the career. I got the family. I got all of it. I got the house. I got the car. I got all of it. And it left me in a position of being more spiritually bankrupt than I've ever been in my life. Because I was trying to fill this God-sized hole with something that was not real. Mm. And so I love how <laughs> I love how Jesus does this because this is the truth. Like as women and, and just as people, we can harness that, but we have to harness it differently. And so what I love about this is that you see, you see the concept of like a man you know, advocating for his daughter, trying to fight through that privilege. And I did the exact opposite that what I should have done. And where I found the paradox is that I thought that the power was going to lead me to the things that were going to make me feel whole when it actually was, is that I needed the power to harness something different. And so what I love about Jesus is he always goes for the person who has the least privilege. And I Mm -hmm. really thought about like, why, why does Jesus do that? Well, he For me, he does that because as human beings, we are also very hierarchical, right? Mm -hmm. So if Jesus were to pick someone that wasn't the lowest, you know, on the lowest rung of that, we would find a way to put a ranking system in between who was worthy of God based on the lowest and wherever Jesus kind of landed, right? And so, you know, I've seen churches do this. We, God loves everybody but not the gay folks, not the trans folks, not the drunks, you know, they, they, they get this hierarchy thing. Right. And, and as I started to excel in my life, I got the hierarchy thing. At least I'm not you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what Jesus calls me to is like, Jesus came to stand in the gap of societal bigotry. That's mm-hmm. how he does it. And what Jesus tells me, and this is what I've learned is that his, the, her expectation of me is that I stand in the gap between where my privilege begins and where the lowest rung starts. Mm-hmm. That's my ministry to figure out how to stand in that gap. And so while I am a Latina queer woman, I also am educated and have certain economical, like economic standing within the community that gives me privilege and I have to examine that that privilege and I have to figure out how do I advocate for those with less than me and so when I think about this and what I would want you know for city church is for us to figure out how to collectively and individually examine our own privilege that we walk in with Mm -hmm. and how do we fill in the gap and stand in the gap between those that are on the margins that cannot advocate for themselves. Hmm. And I have to do that every single day when I go out. And I think it's really easy for Rebecca to get egotistical about what she has and where she got to. And I have to walk through life and I have to think about where, who am I supposed to 
advocate for today. Like all of this that God gave me, he didn't give me because he wanted to pump my ego. Lord knows Rebecca doesn't need that. He gave it to me because there's somebody that needs me to advocate for them okay. because society is not willing to do that. Mm. Yes. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. This has been beautiful to get to have this conversation with you. Leaf.